Hi, everyone. Welcome to Gadget Lab. I'm Lauren Good. I'm a senior writer at Wired, and my co-host, Mike Calori, is out this week. So I was thinking maybe I would just monologue for 45 minutes with some ad breaks, of course. No, I would not do that to you. I've actually invited our excellent health and science writers, Megan Moltini and Adam Rogers, back on the show. Megan, Adam, thank you for being here. And of course, by here, I mean there at home. Happy to be anywhere, but nice to see nice to see your face on the on the Zoom as always. Uh, hello from my closet in Minneapolis. Glad to be here. The reason why I wanted to bring Adam and Megan on the show this week is because we're in a strange phase of the coronavirus pandemic right now. After months of quarantine, cities and businesses are tentatively lifting restrictions and reopening around the world. But that, of course, doesn't mean the coronavirus has just gone away. And while essential workers have been interacting with people and exposing themselves to the virus for months now, for a lot of people, these lifts on restrictions mean that going places and seeing people is possible again, but with a lot of caveats. So people are starting to ask questions about how they should and shouldn't interact with other people. This episode was actually inspired by one of our own Wired colleagues who asked a question in Slack about a complicated family situation. So since Megan and Adam are two of our resident coronavirus experts, I've brought them on the show to help answer some of these questions. And we went a little bit longer than usual this week, but that's because so many of you sent in great questions. And honestly, there's no easy answer. All right, so the first batch of questions came to us through Wired's Instagram. And then later on in the show, I'm going to get to our staff questions. And we're actually gonna have some people calling in. First question from Instagram. Do I need to wear a mask all the time when I go out? Here's the, here's the logic with the mask. The, the logic is it's a respiratory virus and the way that you transmit, resp- there are a, a few different kind of understood ways that respiratory viruses as a, as a genre generically transmit from person to person. But some of those things aren't, aren't understood yet specifically about this one about SARS-CoV-2, which is the virus that causes COVID-19, which is the coronavirus we're talking about. Not only can is one of the modes of transmission, the kind of large droplets that people will give off when they cough or sneeze, you know, the way that you would catch a cold or, or the flu, um, which, uh, which I, the idea is a mask will stop those. So if you cough, that it'll stop those big droplets, these particles of, you know, snot and spit, basically, that are carrying virus. But it'll also stop smaller expiratory particles, the much smaller, less than half a micron particles that come out apparently when you're talking, when you're exhaling, um, when you're singing, perhaps. There's still some questions about that. And, and those behave very differently than those other droplets. So there's some science to try to figure out that the large droplets, you, you cough them out into the air, and then how far do they spread? That's what that six feet social distancing thing is about. People disagree about whether six feet is enough or too much or whatever, but that's what that is, that you cough them out and then gravity pulls them down. But these small particles, because they're so small and because they dry out almost immediately when they hit the air, they hang around more. They float around. They behave a little bit like a gas, not completely like a gas. People are going to yell at me about that, but they, they, they float in the air. How long and, and for, for how much and how much then, how much virus do you need to then take in and where do you inhale that into your lungs? All these things are still trying to, people are still trying to figure them out. But the idea is that if you're wearing a mask, even a cloth one, a simple one, a simple cloth one, that it keeps you from giving those particles off as much. It stops some number of them, and so they aren't out there in the world, especially inside where there's no air to blow them away, and uh, and keeps them from other people getting them. That's the notion. And and the messaging has changed so much there. I mean, Megan and I have both covered three different phases of the messaging that's come from public health experts about this. But but the la- the one that I heard that I finally was able to get my head around was 
better than nothing. Something's better than nothing. And that if some number of people wear some wear a mask some amount of time, that cuts down the amount of infection. And that's what we're trying to do is get the number of infections below a certain number because that's how you stop a pandemic. Right. It seems as though there's been a little bit of a misunderstanding or misperception that if you're wearing a mask, you are protecting yourself. I've heard some people say, well, I went to the grocery store, but I was wearing a mask and gloves, so I'm probably okay. And the whole idea behind a mask, which is I think part of the reason um, why they've become so complicated and in many ways so politicized and polarizing for people is that if we collectively all wear them, it's supposed to be for the greater good of public health. It's supposed to be for other people. You should also check with the uh, local laws and policies because you may live in a place where it's actually required to wear masks all the time. So just these things change quickly and you just want to be on top of them. Next question from Instagram, how long can the virus stay on surfaces? So this one we know a little bit more about, although, you know, a lot of these experiments have been done in closed lab situations, not necessarily applicable to the real world. But there have been some studies that suggest that the virus can live on surfaces for up to 72 hours uh, and still remain viable. Now, We have also come to, you know, there's been changing science around, you know, what's a bigger deal, transmission from services or transmission through the air. I think, Adam, you were referring to this earlier where first it was everybody wash your hands and now it's everyone wear a mask. And and some of the scientists I've talked to have mentioned something really interesting that part of that changing and confusing uh, guidance is related to the fact that it's easier to do experiments about how long stuff stays alive on surfaces. So those were the kinds of experiments that came out first. And now that we're seeing, you know, more studies that are addressing how does the virus live in particles, what size particles, how far do they go, how well do masks work, we're starting to see kind of an evolving guidance that's able to incorporate that, you know, that new science and that and that new evidence. So, you know, I I think, that maybe goes beyond the question, but, you know, I think if you go back to remembering everyone being really freaked out about it, you know, keeping your groceries in your garage for 72 hours, that's where that number came from. Megan's absolutely right. It's much easier to do that, that research than it is to do aerosol research. The surface thing, it, they're, they're called fomites. Those are the surfaces on which viruses can transmit. And and uh, the, the thinking now does seem to be that it's easier to transmit via um, via the air than on surfaces. But the cool thing about washing your hands anyway is that then there seem to also be some indications that numbers for like influenza and colds and other stuff that you do pick up from surfaces, those infection rates went down. So that's good. So keep washing your hands. Next question. How safe is it to send children to daycare? As a childless person, I'm going to pass. Yeah. Uh, as a childed person, um, it seems like the disease does not spread as well to children and among children as it does among adults. It also seems like a more serious disease the older people are. Nobody knows why that is. Children also do seem, when they do get it, to sometimes, very, very rarely, but sometimes get a real weird set of complications that can sometimes be very, very serious on their own. In addition to being a respiratory virus, this disease also seems to have some impacts on circulation and blood and stuff like that. one of the reasons that you close a school, close schools at the beginning of a pandemic is yes, to keep children safe, but also because it then keeps adults home as well. That's punitive, but it's also a public health move. My personal approach to this has been, it's, it's probably not safe yet. But also if you, don't, if you can't earn a living, if you have no 
childcare, if you if there's no support for you, if you, if you're trying to parent alone and you and you can't be in the house, there are other concerns here in addition to the risk of of getting COVID nineteen that that have to be taken into account. We have to we have to understand them and and have respect for those issues as well. And just one thing to add, you know, there are other creative ways around this potentially rather than sending your child to daycare where they're around lots of other kids and you don't know where those kids have been. If you have another family that lives in your building or your neighborhood, you know, similarly aged kids, is there a way that you can, you know, share childcare and some parents watch all the kids Mondays and Wednesdays and Saturdays and allow parents to both be able to work and really kind of limit the amount of exposure to that one family that you, you know, make a make a pact to basically be in each other's germ pods, as I've heard some people call it. Some people call it quarantining. Um, your quarantine is the, another family that you kind of agree that you will be in each other's close contacts, but that's it. And you make rules around, you know, who else is allowed in and who's not. So I just wanted to say that, you know, aside from daycare, there are other creative ways that people are trying to figure out this question. That's a good idea, Megan. Not a bad solution. Inviting another family into your COVID cocoon. We should also note that our Wired colleague, Adrian So, just wrote a story about this very topic on Wired.com this week, and I recommend that everybody go read it for additional information. Okay, next question. Could short flights be safer than long ones, considering physical distancing? So I think this is a question a lot of people have right now about flying in general, but this is specific to short flights. What do we know about short flights versus long flights? It's, a, uh, it's, not, a, uh, it's not a crazy construction because the issue is, uh, the, the way that you do this calculation is uh, the, the amount of contact you have, but also the time of contact. Shorter flight's safer than longer flight. Flights aren't that safe. Flights only circulate about half, they, they recirculate about half the air. It's supposed to be HEPA filtered. There are not a lot of examples of outbreaks of any respiratory diseases, much less this one traced back to airplane flights specifically. Um, but that doesn't mean that it's still not a risk. And it's, again, as, as Megan has said, there, there there's a calibration of risk levels here um, where a, a short flight safer than a long flight, if you can avoid flying, it's probably a good time to avoid flying. If you can't, then you, you know, you wear a mask and you um, wash your hands and have wipes and, 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 uh, and you try to follow social distancing rules. So, you know, I think they're not seating people in middle seats anymore. That kind of stuff, I think, is probably a good idea. However, I will say that short flights tend to be smaller planes and it's you may have a higher likelihood that you have a seatmate or a lot of seatmates and a longer flight, you might be able to avoid that. So it's hard to say, uh, you know, on its face, but those are also things that should go into your consideration. Yeah, I didn't think of that. It's a good point, Megan. I think I'm just going to start rolling my luggage around when I take out the garbage, just just to feel like I'm going somewhere. Take a little drive around, but take a backpack and shove it down in in, in between you and the gas pedal and the brake pedal in the car. Yeah, that's a great just idea. A, yeah. N- no leg space. <laughs> just miss it so much. All right. So restaurants are starting to open up service again, in many cases, serving people outdoors. How can we trust restaurants when we eat from outside? It's not the restaurants to trust the restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> what if the restaurant is cooking coronavirus? <laughs> These the are from Instagram. So. <laughs> um, like I'd rather have my coronavirus cooked, right? Yeah, then raw? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I mean, because you, sure. you really only want to go to a raw virus place that you really trust, that you know that their prep is great. <laughs> um, 
No, <laughs> outside's better than inside. Outside's less risky, less risky than inside for all this, for the reasons of all the how small particles move around in the air. If you're outside, a, a breeze blows them away. It's less of a risk than being in an enclosed room. The issue is that restaurants operate on such thin margins that they want people to be crowded in there. And also you want them to be crowded because as a person, as a source told me this morning, crowded bars are more fun than empty bars. Um, can you trust that they're that they're like following food safety as much as you trusted them before? You know, and also it's a lot harder to transmit uh, the virus that causes COVID nineteen via food than it is all kinds of other stuff that you can get from food. I mean, if you want to panic about food, that's a rabbit hole. Enjoy that. Um, but uh, but yeah, I still where where this pandemic is, you, you want to be outside and you want to be distant from other from other people. The real risk there is to the people who are, you know, caught in, who are stuck in the kitchen together in an enclosed space, um, or to the wait staff who are working mm-hmm. and c- having contact with all these other people. Like this is, now I'm going to be a jerk. It's not just about you, you know, right. exactly. <laughs> uh, it's about all of us together. I think you're right though. in that I think there are so many calculations to do. And one of those is not just your own risk, but the risk that you're exposing other people to, including wait staff. And the other is just how enjoyable is it for you? If at this point, you know, you feel like you need to escape the house or escape the apartment, but you go sit outside with your pod and you're all wearing masks and, you know, furiously sanitizing things. And then, and then you go home afterwards and you think, well, you know, I could have, I could have patronized that restaurant with takeout and, and perhaps not exposed other people. It's a really hard thing to, to decide, I think. Yeah. And I would say, you know, if you do for your, for your mental health or for whatever reason, you have to go to a restaurant, maybe you could try to do that like once every two weeks so that you are trying to be isolated uh, for most of the rest of that time so that you know if you did get exposed that you're not then going on and unwittingly exposing other people. That's one way you could, you know, go out and have your, you know, have your sit down restaurant experience and still be mindful of, you know, the rest of society. Like there are, there are, there are ways that you can mitigate the risks of onward transmission You just have to be thoughtful about it. Great advice. Okay, so the next question is, should we stay in hotels? Anyone? Anyone from Las Vegas want to weigh in on this one? I mean, do you have to? Do you have to? (laughs) I don't know. Like, are you on vacation? Then no, you shouldn't be on vacation. Like, do you have to go to a funeral? I don't know. Like... The qu- I will I, say I, that I was I was on a group call with a bunch of fellow journalists. Then one of them said that she did end up staying in a hotel recently uh, for reporting purposes, and we were like, "What was it like?" <laughs> <laughs> so we had never stayed in a hotel before. Did you wipe everything down? Had do you know if anyone had stayed there the night before you? Uh, and, and it was just yeah, we were we were incredibly curious about the experience. It's like we forgot how lucky we were or or we we didn't notice how lucky we were at the time. And now that we don't have it, you know, we remember it. I think that I would avoid a hotel if you can. I think probably being in a hotel room by yourself, especially if you put the keep the do not disturb up and they don't come in and clean it is, you know, is probably safe because you're alone and you're not being exposed to other people. But, uh, you know, I, I would avoid it. I certainly think that reopening um, the large casinos, for example, as they are in some places, uh, is asking for a very specific kind of trouble at this point. At this point, I would I would like to sit at a hotel bar and have a drink. God, that is so great, isn't it? I, yes. That is a, yes. <laughs> yes. It's a luxury I took for granted. Next question is, how long do you think it will be until immune-compromised people can safely go out again? I mean, I think this is, I think this is one of the questions that 
there is a lot of research aimed at right now because I think, you know, what we've been talking about this whole time is people trying to figure out what levels of risks they're comfortable with for themselves. And I'm guessing for the most part, if you're talking about going to hotels and restaurants, you know, you have a pretty healthy immune system, you know, you are maybe worried about what it could mean to get the the disease, but you're not in one of these really high risk groups. Um, and, you know, we've been talking about that, you know, the, the app, we all know the absolute safest thing to do is to stay in our homes forever for the rest of time. But obviously that's not tenable and it's, you know, going to wear on people's mental health. And that's, that's why we're, you know, talking about how to evaluate these risks, um, you know, as far as returning to society. Um, and I think for people who are immunocompromised, we, we I mean, the, the real answer is they can't, it's not going to be safe until we have something approaching herd immunity. And that could be if we get a vaccine that, that works, you know, in the next year or the next few years. I mean, we're talking about a long time scale. I mean, I don't want to be a downer, but like, those are the facts. All right. The final question from our Instagram audience. When I go out for groceries, I always wear pants. Same. <laughs> There's more to the question. Are short... <laughs> Same. Are shorts safe to wear at the store too? I hope so. I've been wearing shorts. <laughs> Nothing bad has happened yet. So let me answer that. I want to answer that in a couple of ways. One way is yes. Another way is what? (laughs) How do you think this disease is transmitted? Well, that's why I brought you on to help people understand. (laughs) So please help us. Um, That's not really a mode of egress for the virus. Uh, I mean. Okay. So shorts are okay. I think people have probably had this question about flip-flops too versus closed-toed shoes versus am I going to bring it in the house like I think in general this idea of exposure we keep hearing about exposure and and it manifests itself it lodges itself into our brains and then we start thinking of all the ways that we suddenly just as human beings feel vulnerable that that's a that's that's a great construction actually because uh, because it is true all of a sudden we're forced to confront how we move through the world and what we come into contact with and, and how the outside comes into the inside and and what attack surface do we present as physical beings, as biological organisms out in the world to the things that want to, that, that can do us harm. Yeah, that, it, that's all, it's all scary stuff when you start to think about it. Um, welcome to the Monday morning meeting at the science desk. <laughs> <laughs> I think we should rename our desk to just like apocalypse beat. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Those were some great questions from our Instagram audience. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to ask some questions that our Wired colleagues sent in. And I have one of my own. Welcome back. All right. This time, the questions are coming from inside the house. We solicited some questions from our Wired colleagues. Some of them wrote them in. Some of them declined to be named. And some of them actually sent in some voice notes. So we're going to get right to it. Here is our first question. Hi, this is Scott Gilbertson, Wired staff writer on the gear team. My question is about flying. Is it safe for my parents to fly across the country to visit their grandkids? And what, if anything, can we do to mitigate whatever risks do exist? 
So I can take this one. And I'm going to say, I think a lot of these questions coming from our colleagues are some variation of, will you please give me permission to do this thing I want to do? And I'm just saying flat out that like, I'm I'm not going to do that. <laughs> these are decisions you are going to have to make for yourselves um, in terms of evaluating the risk. Uh, but I will say that, you know, all the guidance we're getting from CDC and other world health organizations are encouraging people to travel only when essential, urgent, and necessary. And if all you're trying to do is get your family together for, you know, a family visit or a family reunion, I think that that probably does not fall under (laughs) that category. So I just want to stress again that any unnecessary travel is creating risk not just for you and your family, but for everyone that they might meet along the way, in the airport, on the airplane, in the taxi ride, like whatever it is, there are ways to mitigate the risks, but there's no way to get to zero risk. And so I think you just have to ask yourself, is that going to be worth it? And also, what health are your parents in? Do you want to be the reason that, that, you know, do you want to be the reason that they don't make it? I don't know. I know that's grim, but these are conversations I've had to have with my own family who's been asking me nonstop, can I go visit my grandchildren? Can I go do this? And I, I, uh, it's, we've had to have some really difficult talks. I won't kid you. Next question. How do I convince my family to wear masks when we see each other in the future? And if we're wearing masks, does it matter if occasionally we're less than six feet apart? I'll just reiterate what Megan said in that, uh, you know, we're not, we're, we can't give permission to people to engage in risky behaviors, especially when by dint of asking these questions, they probably recognize the behavior is sort of riskier. Um, but that said, none of us is perfect. Uh, our masks all slip sometimes, both metaphorically and literally. And, um, you know, you want to be cautious. I'm not sure how to convince family members of anything. Because um, it's not like showing people the science helps. I think we've all we've all learned that. Um, maybe some of the things that we've been saying here about why, what the point of the mask is, that the point of the mask is not perfection. None of us expects perfection of any of ourselves. The point of the mask is to reduce, is to mitigate those risks. So like, did the mask slip and you got within six feet of each other like that one time? Try not to do that. That's, that's the idea. Try not to, try not to do that. Were you outside and not wearing masks? Okay. That's, that's good. You know, were you farther apart? Yeah, good. That's how it's supposed to be. This is all difficult. People are starting to go nuts about it. And that's people who aren't forced to, you know, go out and, and do hard jobs, essential jobs every day. It's just those of us who are, have been confined to home and we're getting a little stir crazy. So we try to be forgiving of all of that um, with in mind that like every time you do it, you increase risk a little bit and you should try to mitigate that. Here is our next question. How long should I wait to get tested after going to a protest or other crowded event? I can take this one. Um, I'm in Minneapolis where there have been a lot of protests and crowded events of of all kinds. And the city has started to set up some free testing clinics around town. And they are recommending that people come and get tested within three to seven days of when they were exposed to a large group of people. You don't want to go too soon because if you have been exposed to the virus and it then it doesn't have enough time to, you know, kind of replicate enough that the test can pick it up. So we, you know, we think the incubation is somewhere between three and 14 days with a median around five to seven. So if you can go in that window, you'll have the greatest chance of getting an accurate read on whether or not you have been infected. 
We already addressed some of this in the first part of the show, but this next question comes from our colleague Indu, and she sent in her question. Hey everyone, this is Indu. I'm Wired's Director of Audience Development. My question is about the Bay Area. We're now required to wear a mask within 30 feet of someone. Is this really necessary, or are they just priming us psychologically to be ready to wear masks always and forever? Well, this is the complicated calculation that public health experts always have to make, which is with limited information, how can you induce the safest behaviors by the most people for the longest amount of time, knowing that it won't always work? So if you tell people to wear masks in 30 feet, then a lot of people will try to do that. And that will be safer than nobody doing it. And when the people fail to do it and they get within 15 or something, that's also a little bit safer than if they're within three feet, right? So you, you can imagine, and, and that's not, so these aren't lies. This isn't, it's not nefarious. It's an attempt to, to take incomplete information and apply it to a large population of people with different needs and, and different abilities to, to, to do what you want them to be able to do. Um, are they trying to prepare us to wear masks for, forever and always? You know, there's, a, there's the argument that cultures in which wearing masks outdoors, where that was already kind of normed, um, did better uh, with how COVID-19 spread than, than cultures where it didn't. Those arguments have a lot of problems. Um, f- f- and you can guess what some of them are. Um, they conflate a lot of things. There's some race implications there. That, but, but the fact is that there are places where that was always okay. And it hasn't been okay in the United States. And I think it's going to be okay from now on. A societal shift has happened. A cultural shift has happened where um, we wear masks outside and going forward, probably if you don't feel that well, you wear a mask. And if we want to start using public transit again, it's probably a good idea to be wearing masks. And public transit is going to be really important going forward too, because we don't want to screw up cities with climate and congestion and all kinds of other public health things. So yeah, I think masks are part of what we do culturally now. All right, here's a long question from another one of our Wired colleagues who did not want to be named. And I'm going to condense this a little bit. She says, I am my sister's maid of honor in her upcoming wedding, and the pandemic has created an incredibly tense situation for us. She originally planned a destination bachelorette party for her sister. It was going to involve 10 friends. It was this summer. Um, As the day grew closer, they decided to cancel it. But then shortly after canceling it, her sister decided that she did want to go ahead with this destination bachelorette party. Um, And she's asked this our friend to reschedule a new trip for the same month. She's really not comfortable with this idea of planning a trip for 10 people that involves air travel, staying in a shared accommodation. Um, Also, the staffer lives in New York City, um, which was a COVID hotspot. She talks about this in, in her question to us. She also is aware that perhaps her sister and some of the other people involved in this potential party have been traveling around and maybe not always social distancing. So there's this excruciating back and forth that's that's going on. And her family has kind of done like, it seems like her family has been a little bit passive in it, you know, saying that's oh, just a disagreement and there's no right or wrong. So she is now trying to rationalize whether or not she could possibly go to this bachelorette party and still be a responsible human being. And she ends the question with help. What are your thoughts on this? What a mess. Oh. <sighs> I mean, I think it's incredibly unfortunate to be put in that position, especially when there is enough science to <laughs> be able to say, you know, say some things. Um, well, no, can I, sorry, I, th- there is a right or wrong. They shouldn't have the party. That, I mean, we should say that. That's like the risk. 
that is a group of people getting together for a long period of time in close quarters. That's exactly the risk. Those are where the outbreaks have been. So we should stipulate that. The question is whether that risk is counterbalanced by, you know, not wanting your sister to think that you don't love her. You, you know, right? That is that? Yeah. Have I summed that up right? Yeah, that's it. Well, you think about, you know, the the graduations and graduation parties that didn't happen. All of the kind of markers of transition and change that we rely on to be part of our lives and indicate to, to be with people that we love and show that we respect and care about each other and that uh, that, a, that the, the time is moving, that all had to not happen. Um, and it's it's a weight and it's a it's a it's a real emotional weight um, in the same way as the more the more apparent weight of the you know, 115,000 deaths in the United States already and the people who've been sick and who are going to be disabled and all of the other things that this has caused there's no it, we can't minimize those losses um, but at, but at the same time what they sh- I feel like, and this is an this is an emotional response, not a scientific one. They, those are the things that should make us be be coming together and being more resolute in in the fact that because there are no drugs and no vaccines, that we are supposed to be helping each other and caring for each other more in weird new ways. So I'm so I'm I'm being pretty um, a- adamant, I guess, about like bachelorette parties here as a thing that is a necessary sacrifice, but. If it blows up a family, is that cost too high? I don't know. You know, the thing about this pandemic is that everyone is making sacrifices. And and when we see other people, you know, breaking that social contract and, and maybe not making the same sacrifice, you're the I think the, the knee-jerk response is to say, oh, hey, but like they're doing that. Like they're like, why can't I do my thing? Um, and I think Adam's absolutely right that this is a time where we need to see that and say no i'm going to like take extra care because i'm 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 not you know i'm maybe not seeing that reflected and i need to set an example and and not just set an example but actually by making that sacrifice you are you know reducing potentially dozens or you know hundreds of potential strains of transmission if we're talking about multiple people flying from all over the country to i mean bachelorette parties are you know you go out and you drink and you do things that then cloud your ability to, you know, assess your, the riskiness of that behavior. It's just, um, it, to me, it seems like there can only be one answer. Um, but again, I think when it comes to family, there's, uh, there's no easy answers. And, and I, I promise to still respect and care for my colleague, whichever decision she makes here. Right. And it's hard to communicate those answers, too. One of you said earlier, can you change your family's mind about anything? And so there are certain ways in which you may try to communicate what your concerns are, and they may come across as sanctimonious, and then you're not really getting through to anybody. So it seems like in those cases that you do have to find ways to lead by example or show that you care. In some ways, showing that you care these days is not showing up which is which is hard to grapple with. Okay, this last question comes from our colleague Jay. He also sent in a voice note, so let's hear it. Hi, my name is Jay, and I'm the Director of Editorial Operations at Wired. So here's my question. My gym was super gross to begin with, and I doubt it'll be any better once the pandemic is over. I frankly doubt I'm ever going to go back. So in the meantime, I've taken up running. 
but on my run today of the 15 or so runners or cyclists who breezed past me, only three were wearing masks. I mean, I get it. I wear a mask. I know how inconvenient they can be. My glasses steam up. I feel like I can't get enough oxygen. I have to smell my own breath. I actually brush my teeth before I run. But I wear a mask as much for my own safety as well as for the safety of others. Am I I being overly cautious? Is it okay to do cardio outside on the street without a mask? It does seem like it's really hard to transmit the infection by running past somebody else, even if you're breathing hard. Because if you're outside, those small particles don't seem to get from the person who may be infected and who, I, who isn't showing symptoms yet. Because presumably if you're symptomatic, you're not out running. So this is either if you're asymptomatic, which is to say you're sick, but not, don't have any symptoms, or you're pre-symptomatic, which is you've been infected and you aren't showing symptoms yet. So you still feel good enough to go out for a run. That The number of times that happens times the number of times that you um, come into contact with somebody like that times the amount of virus that you put out times the, um, the cloud that you'd have to run through and inhale. All those things seem very, very rare. I think it's a, it's a good um, practice, if possible, to wear the mask outside because we should be learning to do that. Um, I think the transmissions of running past somebody are much, um, are very rare, vanishingly rare um, at this point, much safer than going to the gym, for example, which is opening, which I think is still probably something that if if you can avoid, you should probably avoid for all the same reasons. Um, But but how mad should you be at some other jogger for not wearing a mask? I mean, that's maybe not where we live yet, yet either, where we're policing those sorts of behaviors in that situation. Being in the supermarket and asking somebody to put a mask on, I think is more significant. I don't know, Megan, do you have a different view on that? No, I mean, the only nuance I would add is that, you know, where you run, you know, may, you may want to, you know, consider different um, behaviors if you, you know, are on a crowded, um, you know, jogging path or other throughway in a city and everyone else is there because they also can't go to their gyms, you know, that might be, again, a situation where you'd want to wear a mask. All right, I have a quick personal question for you both to end the question round. So last year, I uh, I consciously uncoupled after a very long partnership. And, uh, and near the end of the year, I moved into a new place. And, you know, then 2020 happened. And now I'm wondering if I'll ever date again. Okay, that's very dramatic. But I am wondering about dating and how people are supposed to date. So I've heard that in dating apps that now there's a lot of suggestion that people uh, in nudges that people video chat. Uh, I do know some people have gone for socially distant walks and that sort of thing. But what do you really see as the future of dating here? Because there, there was this New York Times graphic this week where the New York Times surveyed more than 500 epidemiologists about the things they would do and wouldn't do. And 42% of them said they would wait more than a year before meeting new people, which was really disheartening to read. So what are your thoughts on that? I have been with the same partner living with the person for 25 years. So I don't think I would know how to answer a question about dating that didn't happen in a year where there was a pandemic. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, way to throw a gal under the bus, Adam. Um. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm useless here. That's all I and I'm embarrassed how useless I am here. (laughs) Um, I've also been living with the same person for a number of years, but I do have younger Guys, siblings. Guys, I was in your boat. I was in your boat just a short <laughs> while ago. My timing is impeccable. 
I'm going to say a few things I've heard of people doing, and then maybe we can do the thought experiment of what we ourselves would do. Um, you know, I have younger friends who have been, you know, on the on the online apps, and they have been setting up video calls. And I have, so my sister actually does this kind of funny thing where the first date is always some version of one person gives a TED talk about whatever they want. Um, because it's kind of like, well, if this sucks, at least like, I learned about this thing. <laughs> like, we don't have to make weird, <laughs> dribble-ish, like, first date commentary over video. Um, I I don't really know what the next step is because I'm not sure there have been a lot of <laughs> a lot of instant <laughs> chemistry. Um, and I hope she doesn't mind me sharing. <laughs> no, I have to say I'm not surprised there haven't been a ton of follow-ups after that formula. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I think, you know... I don't know. I mean, I'll just say I do not envy <laughs> I do not envy you or anyone else in that situation. Um and actually Lauren, I've been thinking about you a lot and how <laughs> how like anxious and how full of anxiety I would be if I was having to make all of these decisions on my own. Um so I <laughs> I uh I f- I feel for you. Um thanks, Megan. Yeah, I, so I don't know, how would I, it's weird because I mean, I, I never did any online dating in pre-pandemic times, so if I were to start doing that, it would just be, I don't know, I might just become a hermit. It just sounds so overwhelming. (laughs) I mean, there is a lot of time to focus on personal growth, which is something that you kind of hope for um, post-relationship anyway, but I think that there's a real risk of becoming too inward when the point is right now, I think that you're also supposed to find ways to help people and connect with people and reach out to other people. And it's it's really hard when you feel hamstrung in making those connections. Um, I've seen some articles, I think The Economist wrote one about how like the emotional connection is back in and sex is out. It's like, well, yeah, like people's hands are forced, but also like, no, I mean, what, so like, are we supposed to start writing love letters? Like, should I be expecting notes via pigeon? I, I, I don't know. Uh, to go back to the concept of a, you know, of a germ pod, um, if you were to meet someone, you know, through an online dating app, you know, I think there's there's nothing wrong with going out and instead of going to get a drink at a bar, you go and you go for, a you know, a socially distanced walk. And maybe after a few of those, you realize, I want to keep seeing this person. And then you wind up having to, uh, I mean, do a, a pandemic age, <laughs> define the relationship talk about if you want to be in each other's germ pod. And, and you know, there's a lot that goes into that in terms of being transparent about how often the other person is going shopping, how many other people they're seeing, you know, like you want to get on the same level in terms of what amount of risk you're comfortable with. But I think so it might accelerate (laughs) or decelerate relationships in that in that sense. Um, But I think there's no reason if you have, you know, a genuine connection with someone that you could, you know, make that decision to explore the relationship more physically in a way that feels safe by having those kinds of conversations. Because it cuts off all the ways that we have to keep in touch with people who are not, you know, who don't share homes with now, all cut off the 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 bandwidth, the 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 frequencies in relationship bandwidth that are so important to a romantic connection. They cut off um, a lot of uh, socio emotional cues because Zoom can't handle that. They cut off spontaneity. They cut off all of the ways that you build partnership 
um, with somebody are the things that, you know, a, a phone call or a video conference are not great at. And, and they're okay at maintaining them maybe if you already had it. You can find ways to, to hold on to them if they pre-exist, but to build them now going forward, it, it does seem like you'd have to find a way to be in person with a person at least for, a, for, for a while. And I think that this is that, this is one of those things where like we can identify what riskier levels of risk and behaviors are, and you can decide which ones are going to be, are that you're going to assume in a, in a given situation. One of the ways that, that like when people try to understand public health folks, try to understand why Japan seems to have dealt with the pandemic better than other places. One of the things that, that um, one of the ideas here is that they communicated the risk very differently. They didn't do, what like the United States did and say, okay, always masks, wash your hands, be six feet apart. Don't be in crowds ever close all the schools. No, no mass gathering events. What instead they did is they kept doing most of that stuff, but they said, here's what the risks are. And here's, so try not to do these things, especially together, you know, try not to be, to talk to somebody really close up for a long time. Try not to be in a crowded room with a lot of people for a long time. Try not to all, all the stuff that we understand are risky acknowledging that like it's all they all kind of cross over with each other and so i would say that the um the the here's my guess it's a guess i'm and i'm not an, i'm not going to be expert in this but the the risk of um of being alone to the point where it hurts a lot for people is probably um uh, that risk is greater than a risk of like okay you went outside and and sat with somebody um, at the other end of a picnic table for a while and tried to get to know them. That's That has its own kind of risks as well, but maybe sometimes those are worth it too. Well, thank you to both of you for answering so thoughtfully, and it seems as though my initial assessment was correct and that I am never going to date again. I'm No, I'm obviously kidding, but it does seem as though we're entering a completely new era of social interaction, and um, I'll keep you updated as I navigate it. And we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll do very quick recommendations. All right, time for recommendations. Megan, would you like to go first? Sure. So this one's a little bit weird. Uh, It's actually an audio book. I don't listen to these very often, but kind of relevant to our conversation. I recently had to travel to Atlanta to take care of a ailing family member and in an effort to, uh, they're an immunocompromised person. So in an effort to minimize risk, we did the, my partner and I did the whole 17 hour drive in one shot, um, (laughs) with only stops at like parks (laughs) for outdoor eating anyways. But we, um, listened to this book called Little Eyes, which is by the Argentinian author, Samantha Schweblin, who is this just amazing kind of surrealistic um, style of writing. I had read her 2017 debut novella, which is called Fever Dream, which was just wild and kind of messed me up for a while. Um, but the but her new book uh, is is actually this kind of thought experiment on what would happen if an individual could be virtually inserted into the life of a random stranger anywhere in the world. And kind of the vehicle for this is 
these little creatures they feel like they would if they were real like we would be covering the heck out of them at wired they're called kentuckys and imagine like a cross between a teddy bear and a cell phone with legs that has uh, a connection to one other person in the world um, inside of it and you don't know who they are and you don't know anything about them and you have to keep the kentucky charged and if you don't the connection is cut and you lose track of each other forever anyways it's um it is wild and it has given me all sorts of things to think about in terms of the way we uh, think about the future at Wired and I cannot recommend it highly enough. And the audiobook is great. The woman who reads it is fantastic and she does accents amazingly. So yeah, it's it's great. That sounds super interesting. Uh, thank you for that recommendation, Megan. Adam, what's yours? We spun up uh, HBO Max in my house via our, our cable and internet subscription and uh, it has... Um, it's like the 57th uh, streaming service that we have for some reason, but it, it's divided into a bunch of channels. One of the channels is Turner Classic Movies, TCM, which means it's like this whole Warner Brothers back catalog. So the other night I turned on um, a movie called Footlight Parade, which is um, James Cagney's first song and dance movie from 1933. And it's with like these delirious psychedelic Busby Berkeley dance numbers with all like 300 scantily clad women in swimming pools sliding down water slides and all these really racy pre-code jokes and Cagney everybody with all the acting is really weird early 30s um you know they're like still learning how to do talkies basically except for Cagney who's magnetic and a movie star and you're like oh well that's why he got to be famous and I stayed up until like one in the morning watching um this movie till the end of it because I stay up too late now because you know, things are things. But also I realized like, God, I'm sitting here watching a hundred year old movie right now, instead of like trying to pay attention to what's happening or, or work or whatever. I can't like, why am I doing this? And I saw, as my partner was going to bed, finally, I was like, I'm good. Not seeing how this ends. I'm sure it's happy. Um, and I was like, I can't, what am I, what am I doing? And the answer is like trying to be okay. Trying to have something that feels better and and you know i'm watching a hundred year old movie because a hundred years ago things were things were different like they had gotten through the spanish flu in 1918 and and it and they were dealing they were trying to deal with feeling bad about the depression by having these beautiful dance numbers and there was no such thing as world war ii they had no idea what was coming it was a moment that um i think fit into fit like a puzzle piece into a very specific place in my head and also the movie's pretty good and the dance numbers are amazing and you watched that on hbo max you said i did yes all right, which is I think fourteen ninety nine per month, if I'm not mistaken. Holy smoke! I'm glad it comes with cable. I think it is. I, th- I think <laughs> I we cut, and I know this because I recently resubscribed to the HBO app. So now I have HBO Max on my iPad because I wanted to watch Run, which is my recommendation. It's a new series created by Vicky Jones. The executive producer is Phoebe Waller Bridge, who many of you may know from Fleabag. It stars Merritt Weaver and Donald Gleason, and it is this zany runaway romance where the two main characters have, they made an agreement many years ago when they were dating in college that if things in the real world ever got to be too much in the future and they texted each other run and the other one responded with run, it meant that they were going to run away together. And throughout the years, they had each texted each other, but the other wouldn't respond. And in this case, they're both at a point in their lives in their late 30s where they say, 
like fuck it we're we're running um and so they get on a train going cross country one of well one of the characters first flies from the west coast to the east coast and does the thing where she runs up to the desk at the airport and slaps her car down and is like get me a ticket i'm like oh my god that sounds so fun right now i would love to do that and and like there's no mask or hand sanitizer or mental gymnastics about will i die and and then so she goes and they meet on a train and then they and then they're going westward. Um, and yeah, it's great. It's funny. It's zany. I really enjoyed it. It was a nice, you know, bit of escapism, certainly. And um, it, as you kind of noted, Adam, there's this thing about watching shows or movies from the before times where now all these interactions seem like we took them for granted. Um, there are characters making out. They're using the train bathroom without worrying about things. In fact, one of them rips the handle off a train bathroom door and then later makes a joke about germs. Um, and uh, yeah, I just really enjoyed it and I recommend it. So that's Run on HBO. All right, that's our very long show for this week. We hope you found it helpful. Thank you for listening. And thank you to Megan and Adam for joining me. Thanks, Lauren. It's always a pleasure to get to talk to you. And thank you to everybody who submitted questions. If you have feedback, you can find all of us on Twitter. Just check the show notes for our handles. The show is produced by Boone Ashworth, and our executive producer is Alex Kappelman. We'll be back next week, and until then, stay healthy. Stay healthy.